We're going to turn to God's word now. There it is. Today we're launching off into a new series that'll take us all the way to Easter. And we're going to be in Luke. And we're going to look at various incidents week by week in Luke's account of the life of Jesus to see what they have to say to us and to teach us. Today we're going to meet two people, and neither of them are Jesus. We'll get to Jesus next week. The first person we're going to meet is Luke himself, the author, the writer and compiler of the material that we're going to be studying. Luke is one of the most significant New Testament writers. He wrote two of the New Testament's longest books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. So he's the only writer who gives us a sequel to his account of the life of Jesus, as he does in Acts. In Acts, he goes on to record the progress of the earliest believers after the death of Jesus. They then go on to become the earliest churches. So Luke and Acts really are a single work in two volumes, volume one and volume two, written by the same author. And actually Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament if you count it in number of verses. The total number of verses in the New Testament by Luke, is greater than the number of verses written by Paul, who would come second in that league table, and John, who would come third. So clearly, we need to pay some attention to Luke and what he writes. He is significant. So I'm just going to start by reading the opening verses of Luke chapter 1. It'll be on the screen for you, just the first Four verses to start us off. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you most honourable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So those are the opening verses that Luke writes. Luke was, we believe, a medical physician or doctor. And there are some mentions of him in Acts as one of Paul's companions and colleagues. Luke was a Gentile, That means he wasn't Jewish. He was probably Greek. And it seems likely that he came to faith through Paul uh, and then joined Paul and became part of Paul's team. So Luke himself didn't meet Jesus personally, although he lived at the same time as him. So he is an adult in the immediate period after Jesus' death. And after he comes to faith, he's clearly an intelligent and educated man. And he decides that he is going to research and write an accurate historical account of Jesus' life and teaching. 
We can't be certain, but we believe that Luke wrote his gospel something like 30 to 40 years after the crucifixion. So it is, it's still within the same lifetime of those events. And so he is able to go and seek out and interview eyewitnesses, people who were actually there and would still be alive at that time to give their account. We know that Paul spent some time in Jerusalem. That's talked about in Acts 21 and and also in other localities where the original disciples and followers of Jesus would be. So it's not hard to imagine that Luke was able to use those opportunities to go and seek out the key people, the eyewitnesses, and interview them for himself. It is Luke who gives the most detailed account of Jesus' birth. And we believe that could be because he went and interviewed Mary. He went and found her and got the details from her. Maybe he was able to track down one or two of those shepherds. They only appear in Luke. And maybe he could hear from them what happened to them that night. So Luke gives us his own introduction to his work, to what he's doing and why. He tells us that having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account. So he knows he's not the only person doing this, but what seems to matter to him is careful accuracy. The assurance that his account is reliable. He wants to make sure that he's got it right, that he reports it right, and that he discounts the hearsay and only writes what he can be sure of. And he's gone to quite some lengths to make sure that he does that job well. And he tells us why he's done it. He addresses Theophilus in these first verses. Theophilus is probably another Gentile, like Luke, who has come to faith and wants to understand clearly the truth of all that is known about Jesus. There was no New Testament for them to refer to like we do. We just pick it up and have a look and see what it says about Jesus. They didn't have that. They only had the words of the people who had been there. So Luke is setting out to write an accurate account. And he's done this so that, Theophilus, you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke's passion is for an accurate and truthful account because he knows the power of this truth. And he wants this truth to be known and trusted, for it to travel far and wide across the world without getting distorted or misreported. Now, some might say that a writer like Luke 
has a vested interest, that he wouldn't really be objective in his writing because he would have an interest maybe in overstating what had happened because writers like Luke wanted to convince people. But there were hundreds of eyewitnesses still around in this region at this time. And not all of them were supporters of Jesus. What Jesus said and did was not only witnessed by people who came to believe. He was seen and heard by plenty of others who didn't. And so these early Christian writers had to be precise in what they reported. They had to be careful with their claims. They would have been discredited and ridiculed if they had exaggerated or embellished. There would be no shortage of people who would be only too happy to discredit them. And that reason itself gives us confidence that the Gospels are using eyewitness accounts that were corroborated. They're not just someone's fantasy. And so we're going to join Luke on his journey in these coming weeks. And we're going to see Jesus through the eyes of what has been reported to Luke by those who saw it for themselves. Our series is called Love Comes to Life, Meeting Jesus in Luke. I'll unpack that a bit more next week when we start our series for real. Today is still the introduction. We're still getting ready and having spent quite a bit of time in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 over Christmas, the story of the birth, we're going to pick up the story today in Luke chapter 3. So let's read now from chapter 3. The first two chapters have described the birth of Jesus and an incident from his childhood And we're arriving now at chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 18 verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Let's just pray together. Our God, we believe in the power of your word. We believe it is living and active and it has the power to do things, to change us. And so may the word on the page and on the screen become a dynamic word in our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, having met Luke, the author, the second person that we're meeting today is John the Baptist, who Luke is writing about here in chapter 3. A strange chap, John the Baptist, it's not always obvious what the point of him is. He's very clear with the people that he is not Jesus. He's not the Messiah, even though they want him to be. But Luke has gone to the trouble of describing the annunciation and birth of John the Baptist in about the same level of detail as he does for the birth of Jesus. So Luke obviously thinks that he is significant. Let's just have a look at how chapter 3 starts. Why does Luke start with this list of, to us, slightly mysterious and unpronounceable names. Who are these people? Well, of course, Luke wasn't writing to us. He was writing to Theophilus. 
And those names would have been much more meaningful to Theophilus than they are to us. Luke is actually doing several things here. One of them is his desire for accuracy because he's enabling us and all his readers to pinpoint the dates as closely as he can of exactly when these events are happening. So he's being as accurate as he can about exactly when this took place. And what isn't immediately obvious uh, to us from this list of names is that he's also setting the scene, the context in which John and then Jesus are living and operating. It is a turbulent and violent and dangerous political world. He names first the Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius started off okay, but as his rule went on, he became a tyrant, mad and bad and dangerous. And he's the supreme ruler of the world for these people in these times. And then Luke names the regional leaders, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jewish religious leaders of that time, Annas and Caiaphas, all of them corrupt, power-hungry, and despotic. Terrible things were happening as a matter of course in this world that is being described to us through this list of names. Torture, imprisonment, execution without trial, That's what justice looked like. There was oppression and terror, and the people were just crying out for something to change, for someone to deliver them. And so the purpose of that list of names is to paint clearly in the reader's mind a picture of the political scene, which is the backdrop to what is going to be happening. There's also a rather nice sense that Luke is building up his introduction of John. Because actually, the main subject of this sentence, which is a list, comes right at the end. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's the bit he's getting to here. The rest is just setting the scene. And so actually, he has just reordered the world into God's terms. The people who might seem to matter the most and would certainly feel to the people at the time to matter the most, they're just scenery here. The power brokers, the despots, the headline makers of the day, they are the backdrop to what God is doing. And what God is doing is something that by their terms seems really insignificant. Somewhere out in the back of beyond, in the desert, to some nomad who doesn't even have a proper job, the word and the spirit of God comes. John is in the wilderness. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, And verse 80, at the very end of John's birth story, 
it says, John grew up and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry. So when the word of God comes to him in the wilderness, as it tells us in chapter 3 verse 2, John doesn't just happen to be there on a day trip. He's been living there for a long time. And Luke is implying that his spiritual growth and awareness, his spiritual strength has developed there. How very apt. The wilderness is a tough and difficult place as many of us will have experienced in our own way at different times. But the wilderness is John's place of preparation. It is what prepares him to hear and receive the word that God will give him. The wilderness is not just incidental. It's not just some eccentric lifestyle choice of a strange man. It is the place where God can speak and work and quietly build. God's new word, fresh revelation to his people is coming out of the wilderness. So John now comes out of the wilderness and he starts preaching to the people of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke then connects him with a prophecy from Isaiah. This quotation is from Isaiah 40 that we read in our passage. And this is an editorial choice by Luke. It is Luke who is saying this about John. This is how Luke sees him. And these words in Isaiah were originally written to people in captivity, people in exile, longing for freedom, longing to return home, but barely able to imagine that there could ever be a road home. They are mired in hopelessness, that this is all that will ever be. And these words in Isaiah were saying to them, here is the road home. It's here, get ready. You need to get ready. And Luke sees John as the one in that prophecy who now calls the people to get ready because a road home a road out of oppression and intimidation and fear is coming. God is coming to you. In Isaiah's days, if the announcement came that the king was coming to visit your town or your city or your land, you would need to mend the road. The roads were rough and ready, they were fine for donkeys, and foot traffic, but the king would be coming in his hottest racing chariot 
or his finest ceremonial chariot, so the potholes needed to be filled. Rubbish and debris needed to be swept away. The ups and downs and unevenness of the road needed to be improved and smoothed out and made ready for him to arrive so that he can arrive without delay or hindrance. And here we have John announcing the imminent arrival of the Messiah and calling the people to mend their roads, to get ready, to sort their lives out, sort their hearts out, to sweep away the detritus so they're ready for him. And the way that they need to get ready, John says, is to repent and be baptized. Now we need to understand what those words meant to their first hearers. Baptism was an admission of need, an admission of the need of God's forgiveness and restoration. Jews did not practice baptism on themselves. They didn't need to. They were already saved as they saw it, simply by being born Jews. The only people who were baptized at this time were people who were not born Jewish and wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. They were baptized as a kind of ritual washing to clean them of their Gentile defilement. Jews, they believed, had by birthright a rightness before God. So this is massively radical and to be honest, offensive to start proclaiming that Jews needed baptism. In verse eight, he says to them, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. Don't play the Abraham card, he's saying to them. You can't just play the Abraham card as your trump card, your ace, your get out of jail free card, to mix my metaphors. Your salvation and your rightness before God will be shown by how you live, just like everyone else. Because it's not just the Tiberius Caesars, Pontius Pilate's and Herod's who are sinners, is it? The truth is that all the people had slumped into habits of injustice and power and advantage grabbing and abuse of one another, abuse of whoever had less power than you. Ill treatment can do that to us when others around us behave uh, abusively or badly and get away with it. Often the result is that we end up passing it on and doing it ourselves at our own level. And so wider society 
here had ended up reflecting the values and the behavior imposed on them. And corruption and abuse were widespread at every level of society. It's easy, isn't it, to blame our leaders for the ills of our society, for the injustices in our own lives. It's easy to say that others are the bad ones and we are the victims. And it may well be true that we have suffered injustice or had wrong done to us, but that doesn't mean that we are faultless. You need to look to yourselves, says John. What's really interesting is that the people have been crying out to be released from their oppressive rulers for change to come from the top. But John says, no, it's you who needs to change. In actual fact, the people had been crying out to God to rescue them with the idea that somehow they could change God and make him start paying attention to their plight. And their idea was that if only God would turn towards them and show some compassion and start behaving like a God again, everything would be much better. They kind of thought it was God who needed to change. They're full of their own grievances and they want to hold God to account for them. But John says, okay, God is coming. The Messiah is coming, but it's not going to be how you thought. It's not God who needs to change. It's you. It's not God's attitude that needs to change. It's yours. It's not about you trying to make God meet your expectations. You need to meet his. I've brought a visual aid from our garage. Can you see it? I wonder if anybody knows what this is. The gardeners among us will know what this is called. I'm looking at Lewis. An axe. It's not an axe, actually. It's a mattock. It's a mattock from our garage. It's a garden tool. Um, We bought it um, because when we moved into our house, the garden was just a patch of mud. Um, But it wasn't just mud, because our house is built on the site of an old clay pit. It was really clayey muddy soil and we wanted to put a lawn down and the spade and the fork just weren't doing anything and so we had to buy this because the job of a mattock is for breaking up that compacted soil I'm going to wield it very inexpertly but I believe you do something like this it is for breaking up that compacted soil in some ways It struck me. John the Baptist could be known as John the Mattock because that was his task 
to break up the compacted ground. He is the tool that God will use to break up the compacted ground in preparation for Jesus arriving. I'm really interested in the image of compacted ground. It's one that often seems relevant to me. It's a really meaningful spiritual image for me, compacted ground and breaking up the compacted ground. Nothing new can be planted in compacted ground. The seeds, the roots can't penetrate. It has to be broken up, turned over, loosened, aerated before anything can grow there. I wonder where the compacted ground is in your life. We all have it. Ideas and attitudes and beliefs ways of being that were formed long ago and have become hardened in us. Sometimes it's formed through bad experiences, through pain or disillusionment or fear. The soil in us gets trampled down and compacted and nothing can grow there. Simple repetition can form compacted ground. A footpath that has been trodden by millions of feet over many years becomes compacted. Retreading the same old ground year after year leads to compacted soil. God is less interested in the things we've been doing for years and years than he is in our readiness for what he wants to do now. We can have compacted ground as a church. We can have compacted ground as families. And we can have compacted ground as individuals fixed and solid but actually dead areas where nothing can grow and so is there somewhere in your life where God wants to come with his mattock and break up that compacted ground in you so that he can do something new so that he can release you from it and plant new seeds in you so you can see new growth. Before the arrival of Jesus on the scene, before we get stuck into our journey through Luke and what we will find there, what in you might need mattocking? so that God's word and God's spirit can enter in and do something new in you. And please, please, I'm begging you, please don't be sitting there thinking, well, I'm sure there's no compacted ground in me. 
because there is your compacted ground. That's where you need to start with the belief that there's nothing in you that God might want to change or no new understanding or fresh insight that God might want to give you. What new work does God want to do in us as a church? And what compacted ground therefore needs mattocking here in us? John's task, John the mattock, is to prepare the ground for Jesus, who is coming shortly after him. He is the mattock who is to break up the compacted ground in these people so that they are ready to receive what Jesus has to say when he comes. And quite frankly, he needs to disillusion them. He needs them to wake up to the truth that there are no get-out-of-jail-free cards with God. They even they need to show repentance rather than just expecting it from other people. And their repentance will be made visible by its fruit. Repentance is not just some words that you say and then it's done. It is shown every day by how we live. And that's going to mean rooting out all the bad habits that they've got comfortable with. And it is utterly, devastatingly practical. Those who have two shirts, uh, John says, those who have two shirts must share with those who have none. Walter Brueggemann says, Apparently, in this society, there were some who had numerous shirts, maybe whole wardrobes full of shirts, maybe some they never even wore. How many shirts do you need? And apparently, also, in this society, there were some who had no shirts. This was the reality. There were some whose cupboards were stuffed with shirts and some who had none at all. There's nowhere to hide. Those of you who have much must share with those who have little, says John. Ouch, even my shirts? Tax collectors, don't extort money from people. Soldiers, don't abuse your power. Essentially, in those three things that John says to those three groups of people who come to him, he's saying whatever power and benefits you have, don't misuse them just because you can. Use them for the benefit of those who have none. That's what repentance looks like. This is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance is seen in how we treat what we have and how we treat others. A transformed life transforms not just the way we relate to ourselves, 
not just the way that we relate to God, but it transforms our ways of relating to other people. It's easy for us to miss how radical John's teaching was because we are much more used to teaching about repentance. But we need to be very careful about any feelings of superiority as well. None of us are immune to compacted ground. Those words from Isaiah, they're not talking about minuscule change, are they? Raised up valleys and flattened mountains are speaking of radical transformation of the whole landscape, the very transformation of reality in real and visible ways. Seemingly immovable objects are reshaped. Seemingly unalterable pathways are changed and made different because of the coming of the Lord. The demands of God's newness that comes to us in Jesus, it requires the breaking up of compacted ground in all areas. How about you? Are you willing? Let's take a few moments of quietness and then we're just gonna play Spirit of the Living God fall afresh on me. We're just gonna listen to that. And as you listen, acknowledge your need for God to come and soften you, to break up those hardened and compacted places. Ask him to, and he will. But first we'll have quietness, and then we will hear the song.